So did anybody else crave Almond Joy candy bars this past week? <laughs> Those of you who were here last week, uh, you know that we looked at the book of uh, Numbers chapter 17 and Aaron's almonds. Uh, God clearly, clearly identifying Aaron as his chosen high priest by causing his staff to sprout, to bud, to blossom, and then produce almonds. That's nuts, right? The reason for almonds was it was a connection to the gold lampstand, which was a miniature almond tree in the uh, tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. The symbolic function of the gold lampstand was to shine the light of God's favor on the 12 loaves of showbread that were on the table. The light of God's favor resting uh, on the 12 tribes of Israel. So almonds bring joy. The light of God's favor is made possible by the atoning sacrifice presented by the high priest. But too many churches exchange the true gospel for the therapeutic gospel, emotional manipulation, and they steal that almond joy with guilt-mongering or attempts of ooey-gooey's to make you feel good. The therapeutic gospel is prevalent in so many places attempting to make you feel good. How much better is the true gospel that proclaims the truth that you are loved. Not just making you feel loved, but to know that you are loved. Aaron's almonds bring joy. The mounds of guilt-mongering and emotional game-playing don't. Jesus Christ's once-for-all atonement brings joy. And so it is said that the word of God rightly proclaimed will afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Let me say that again. God's word rightly proclaimed will afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Genuine guilt comes from standing in God's holy presence. Real forgiveness comes from drawing near to the throne of God's grace, made possible because of Jesus Christ, our eternal high priest, who continually intercedes for us. At the end of Numbers 17, the Israelites, convicted, cry out, we will die, we are lost, we are all lost. They had become aware of God's holiness and their unholiness. And in Numbers chapter 18 this morning, we see that God focuses on the work of the high priest by whom we can then receive mercy and forgiveness. That we might truly come into God's presence and hear the true gospel rather than a false therapeutic gospel from a false idol. Before we read his word, let's go before the author in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do pray that you would speak to us. We know that you do speak by your word. In order for us to hear you speak, we need your Holy Spirit to come now to bear witness to the reading and the proclamation of your word. Draw us near to you. Afflict us and comfort us as necessary. To that end, we pray for the preacher who is not worthy but by your grace he is able, and so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Numbers 18 breaks into four sections with the phrase, the Lord said to Aaron, or the Lord said to Moses. So listen to the first revelation in verses 1 through 7. The Lord said to Aaron, you, your sons, and your father's family are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary 
and you and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the priesthood. Bring your fellow Levites from your ancestral tribe to join you and assist you when you and your sons minister before the tent of the testimony. They are to be responsible to you and are to perform all the duties of the tent, but they must not go near the furnishings of the sanctuary or the altar, or both they and you will die. They are to join you and be responsible for the care of the tent of meeting, all the work at the tent, and no one else may come near where you are. You are to be responsible for the care of the sanctuary and the altar, so that wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. That answers the question from the end of number 17. At the end of that chapter, they'd asked, anyone who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? And the answer here is a resounding no. You're not all going to die because the Lord has chosen Aaron as the high priest who can come near to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and he can enter that sanctuary to offer an atoning sacrifice and to make intercession on your behalf. And further, all the Levitical priests will stand guard to make sure that no one but the high priest comes near that tent of meeting in the testimony place. You've seen signs at various places, no unauthorized personnel past this point. The doors are probably locked, uh, perhaps passcode protected, and perhaps there's even a person standing guard at the door to make sure that no one uh, unauthorized gets past. This is for the protection of everyone. No unauthorized personnel, because unauthorized personnel might come in and push a button or flip a switch. Catastrophe for everyone. And so here we see that God has already provided what they are crying out for. It is the Levite's duty to guard the tent of meeting so that no unauthorized person may draw near and provoke God's wrath on the nation. There's one commentator on this passage who has noted that the Levites functioned as a lightning rod to attract God's wrath upon themselves whenever an Israelite has encroached upon the sanctuary. The Levites were the lightning rod inviting the wrath of God on themselves in order to protect the people. And so in a very real sense, the gift of the priesthood was a gift of grace to the nation of Israel. They stand as a physical and spiritual intermediary between God and the people. And so we see this grace of guarding. Jesus does this for us as our eternal high priest. Jesus physically stood between God and his people and offered himself as the perfect and final sacrifice so that we might be invited to approach the Lord. We should never do this in a cavalier or arrogant attitude And so we approach the Lord with fear and trembling, but we also approach with confidence in Christ so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is our lightning rod. He absorbed the fullness of God's wrath 
to protect us and to provide for us a way to approach the Lord now and for all eternity. But if we could be truly honest for a moment, we would have to admit that we rarely experience coming into God's presence. Doctrinally, we believe that that's what we're doing now in worship. We believe that's what we do when we read and meditate on God's word, when we come to the Lord in prayer. We believe that we're entering his presence, but it often doesn't feel like it. That is because we struggle today with the exact same thing that the Israelites struggled with then, a lack of awareness of God's transcendence and God's holiness. We have traded awe with entertainment. In 1985, Neil Postman wrote the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. The subtitle of that book was Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. What he wrote in 1985 is even more true today. We became an entertainment culture in which everything from education to politics and to religion must first and foremost be entertaining. Kids, where are kids right now? When we ask you about something, have you ever noticed that the only answers you ever seem to give in response to how something was is that either it was boring or it was fun, right? How was school today? Boring. How was practice today? Boring. How was the game today? Boring. I didn't get to play much. What if the goal isn't to be fun or not to be not boring? What if there's more to life than whether something's fun or boring? So I heard you met Jesus today. How was that? Eh, it's okay, kind of boring. He didn't really talk to me much. You and your sons and your father's family are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary. So how was work today, my Levitical son? Kind of boring, you know, just bearing the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary, against the priesthood. Not nearly as entertaining as the YouTube videos I was watching earlier. You are to be responsible for the care of the sanctuary and the altar so that the wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. So what'd you do today? Oh, not much, you know, just making sure the wrath of God doesn't fall on everyone. What's for dinner? Anything good? We have at least two generations and now a third who have been raised to evaluate everything based on its entertainment value. We have traded awe for entertainment and we are amusing ourselves to death. Genuinely coming into the presence of God, being filled with reverent fear will happen when we stop seeking to be entertained and we will once again see the grace of guarding. So we move from the grace of guarding to verses eight through 24 and two revelations that are in this section uh, and the grace of giving to the Israelite or to the Levites. So listen again to God speak by his word, beginning at verse eight. Then the Lord said to Aaron, I myself have put you in charge of the offerings presented to me. All the holy offerings the Israelites give me, I give to you and your sons as your portion and regular share. You are to have the part of the most holy offerings that is kept from the fire. From all the gifts they bring me at as most holy offerings, whether grain or sin or guilt offerings, that part belongs to you and your sons. Eat it as something most holy. Every male shall eat it. You must regard it as holy. This also is yours. Whatever is set aside from the gifts of all the wave offerings of the Israelites, 
I give this to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. Everything in your household who is ceremonially clean may eat it. I give you all the finest olive oil, all the finest new wine and grain they give the Lord as the first fruits of their harvest. All the land's first fruits that they bring to the Lord will be yours. Everyone in your household who is ceremonially clean may eat it. Everything in Israel that is devoted to the Lord is yours. The first offspring of every womb, both man and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. But you must not redeem the firstborn of an ox, a sheep, or a goat. They are holy. Sprinkle their blood on the altar, burn their fat as an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Their meat is to be yours, just as the breast of the wave offering and the right thigh are yours. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. I give to the, to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. It is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for offenses against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. When Jen and I moved to Florida to begin seminary, we had been attending various churches in order to find a church home. On four successive Sundays, we attended four different churches that happened to be having their stewardship Sunday. Here we were, poor seminary students, and we heard four straight stewardship sermons. <laughs> I kept thinking, I'd love to give money, I just don't have any. There's somebody who's coming here to Westminster this morning for the first time, you might think, sure enough, here's another sermon with a pastor asking for money. It's all they ever do. The truth is I hardly ever preach on giving because I preach the point of passages. And I only preach on giving when it comes up in the book of the Bible I'm preaching. In fact, in my nine years here, I think I've touched on the subject maybe four or five times. I don't avoid the subject of stewardship, but it only occasionally comes up as the point of a passage. This is one of those passages. But here the focal point of stewardship is the Levitical priesthood who serve for the protection and provision of the whole community. A portion of the offerings that are presented to the Lord are given to the Levites. And so this passage is one of many that speak specifically of tithes, tithes giving 10% to the Lord and for the Lord's work. Our kids, when they were growing up, we had uh, found these. We gave to our kids these, uh, these stewardship banks. 
Uh, it was a great way of helping them understand the tithe. There is uh, the church and the bank and the store. And so as what we could see was visually, and they could kinesthetically find that if they were given a dollar, 10 cents would go in the church, 10 cents in the bank, good to save. But the bulk of it, the 80 cents, goes to the store. And that's money you have to use for the stuff that you want to buy later on. But the first 10% goes to the Lord and the church, 10% to save for later, and then the others is yours to use uh, how it is you're going to use that. So church, bank, and store. Scripture talks about the giving of tithes and also those tithes being first fruits, the tithe off the top rather than the leftovers. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. I love the story that is told by a missionary who heard a knock on the door of his hut. And answering, the missionary found a boy standing there, one of the native boys, and he had a large fish in his hand. And the boy said, you taught us what tithing is, and so here I brought you this fish. And the missionary received it with great thanksgiving. He said, well, this is your tithe. Where are the other nine? And the boy beaming said, oh, they're still in the river. I'm going to go catch them now. Verses 20 and 21 show us that second revelation. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in the land, nor will you have any share among the Israelites. I am your share and your inheritance. I give to the Levites all the tithes as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. The Levitical priests who were called to serve full-time at the tent of meeting, doing the Lord's work there, did not own land or flocks. And so tithes, first fruit offerings, are presented to God and given to the Levites so that they and their families would have food to eat. And so tithes are not given to make the priests rich, like prosperity preachers who add to their fleet of jets. Nor... Does giving a tithe make the giver rich, as promised by those same prosperity preachers? Stories told about a church meeting where a very wealthy man uh, stood up uh, and started to tell the rest about his Christian faith. And he said, I'm a millionaire, with some pomposity, he says this, and he, I attribute all of my blessings to God. I remember the turning point of my faith. I had just earned my first dollar, and I went to a church meeting, and their speaker was a missionary who told us about his work, and I knew I only had a dollar bill, but I either had to give it all to God's work or nothing at all. And so that moment I decided to give my whole dollar to God, and I believe that God blessed that decision, and that's why I'm a rich man today. As he finished, he sat down into his seat, and a sweet older lady sitting in the same pew leaned over and said to him, I dare you to do it again. Not only are we uh, not to give with the promise of puffing ourselves up in our pomposity, but nor are we to only give because there's a stated need, but to give as a regular offering to what God has regularly given to us. Another story is told about another wealthy man who was opposed to renovations happening in the church building. And so he went to a deacon's meeting to uh, speak firmly against it. But no sooner than he started to speak against the church building renovations when a piece of plaster fell from the ceiling and hit him on on the shoulder. He said, I take it back, I'll give $100. And then another piece of plaster fell and hit him on the head. He said, I'll give $1,000. And one of the deacons looked heavenward and said, hit him again, Lord, hit him again. Well, earlier in the service, we read 2 Corinthians 8, 
which gives a Christ-centered perspective on giving for Christians today. 2 Corinthians 8 returns financial giving to a heart issue, in which we read that the Macedonian Christians entirely on their own urgently pleaded with us of the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And so just as you excel in everything in faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, and your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It's a beautiful perspective, the grace of giving. Everything we have is given to us by the grace of God's giving. And so together we get to share in the grace of giving to the Lord's continued work, having been recipients in the grace of giving. Another story told about a teenager who was sitting in worship and the collection plate was being passed around and it was going to him. He quickly pulled out a dollar bill and put it into the plate. And suddenly there was a tap on his shoulder. Somebody behind him handed him a $20 bill. And so he took the $20 bill and he put it in the plate and passed the plate along thinking, wow, that's a really generous person. Then that same person tapped him on the shoulder again and said, that was your $20 bill. It fell out of your pocket. It's good to be reminded that the grace of giving is exactly that. It's not given reluctantly or under compulsion, a decision of the hearts. It was actually one of the concerns that we had as the elders and deacons here at Westminster of uh, the option of electronic giving it was a concern that that would begin to happen automatically and we would lose sight of giving as an act of worship, which it needs to continue to be. The tithe, giving 10% as an act of worship encourages what 2 Corinthians 8 calls equality in giving. Equality in giving means that it isn't how much you give, but giving according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So that there's equality in giving, and we together uh, can be glad for our share in what the Lord is doing in and through us together. And so from the grace of guarding to the grace of giving to the uh, Levites, the last set of verses show us the grace of giving from the Levites. Listen once again to God's word from uh, beginning at verse 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to uh, the Levites and say to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain, from the threshing floor or juice from the wine press. In this way, you also will present an offering to the Lord from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. From these tithes, you must give the Lord's portion to Aaron the priest. You must present as the Lord's portion the best and holiest part of everything given to you. Say to the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor or the wine press. You and your households may eat the rest of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. By presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in this matter. Then you will not defile the holy offerings of the Israelites, and you will not die. The pastor tithes too. Verse 26 tells us that the Levites give a tithe of the tithes received. The pastor tithes too, participating in that act of worship. The pastor pays taxes too. In fact, most people don't know this, but pastors are considered self-employed, so we pay self-employment rate of taxes. Turns out the Lord promotes equality in giving better than the government, but that probably stands to reason, right? 
The pastor is not holier than you. Moses and Arian were not holier than thou. The Levites were not holier than you. They were simply chosen by God to carry out the particular office and work. Similarly, pastors and elders and deacons are not determined to be holier, but simply to be called to carry out the particular office and work. The New Testament consistently affirms financial support of true gospel preaching pastors. Jesus does so in Matthew 10. The Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, in which he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And if the pastor ever gets too snooty about this, we remind him that he's being compared to an ox. (laughs) Because it really is about Jesus. The worker is worthy of his wages because the work is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Levites were to give the best of what had been given to them, which was to be the best of what had been given to the Israelites. The best from God, the best to God, to remind us that it's about Jesus. And together, we get to share in the grace of giving to the glory of God. And so may the truth set us free to do just that.